Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is from Romans chapter 5, and this chapter really, it's going to pit Adam and Jesus as opposites, and by Adam, sin and death, but by Jesus, the free gift of life and salvation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more hath the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We have a couple of different subjects in the chapter, really, um, but the latter half of it is all one 
one repetition again and again. We'll, we'll see that when we get to it. But first, starting the chapter, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, just pause right on that one. Family conversation point. How are we saved? This is of great importance for our children to know that our salvation is not our own work, right? It's not justified by works. Our, our faith, our salvation, we are justified by faith. That's a crucial concept. And it, it helps to keep you from various doubts and despair. The world around us today, even within the Christian culture of the church, it's all about doing. How do you know you're saved? Well, you know, my, my good works outweigh my bad. I've done, I've done this, that, and the other thing. But ultimately, when that person looks at themselves, they start to doubt. Have I really done enough? What if I haven't? And this is that beauty of what you see in Lutheran theology, and it's right here. We are not justified by our works. We're justified, justified by faith. It is not subjective based on what I have done, where I'm the subject. It's an objective reality. It's what God has done for me already because he does it, and I simply receive the gift. It's done, and there is no need to doubt it. How do I know I'm going to be in paradise? Because Jesus said so because he made me his own, because he died on the cross for me, because he shed his blood to forgive my sins, because he made me his own and sealed me in the waters of baptism. It's not about what I've done, and it's such a great freedom for the Christian. It's such a great joy for the Christian to know that it all depends on Christ. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. It was good to get that hallelujah in there. We're starting the season of Lent um, a day from now. (laughs) And, you know, those get put away for a season. All right, so you, you start with that kind of a conversation. Good stuff. We have peace with God. Now, this peace word is not how we usually use peace today. We water down peace to be quiet. It can mean that. That's okay. But we're not talking about your peace and quiet idea. We're talking about reconciliation. We're talking about like a peace treaty, the end of a war. We have peace with God because of Jesus. We deserve the fullness of God's wrath upon us. Think the waters of the flood in Genesis 6 that come and wipe us out. We deserve that. But in Christ Jesus, we have peace. The war is over. We are one with God again. It's just one verse, right? Great text. Through him we have also obtained, so here's something else beautiful about this, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So many words here, uh, so much going on. So we have access into God's grace. The gifts that the Lord gives, forgiveness, life, salvation, the gift that he gives as he daily builds up his church, as he feeds us with his word and sacrament, all these sorts of things. We have access to those by faith. Faith receives the gifts that the Lord gives. 
in which we stand. Standing firm is a truth, a reality of the Christian life, that we are to stand firm against sin, death, and the devil, the temptations of our own sinful flesh and of this world. In this particular instance, um, again, putting the the letter to the church in Rome in the mid-50s, Roman persecution is not great at this time. Not like it's going to be under Nero, the emperor, um, shortly after this. When you get into the 60s AD, uh, that's going to be much more significantly worse. There is still some persecution, though. Christianity is not legal. It's against the law to believe in Christ. You're supposed to worship Caesar. So there is some of that going on. And so they stand, I think, not just in the sense of remaining in your faith, but standing firm also truly under the pressures of persecution, the pressure to bow down before Caesar. There's some reality to this. Verses 3 through 5 are a challenge, maybe? I don't know that's the right way to say it. We rejoice in our suffering. (laughs) That's a challenge. What Christian in America rejoices in suffering? We have an American worldview. We've been taught that suffering is bad and that we want to have pleasure above all things. That's the almost opposite of what the Scripture teaches, by the way. We have to cast off our American worldview, repent of such things, and spend so much time in Scripture that we come out with a worldview that comes from God and not from men. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Okay, why would we rejoice in suffering? And this is not going to be the angle from second, well, First Peter. If you read through First Peter, Peter will teach you that suffering is a gift from God because it points you to Jesus. As we suffer, we look to his suffering. And anything that points you to Jesus is a good thing to have in your life. So suffering does that. But here, what we're looking at is that suffering ultimately produces hope. There's a similarity here. I mean, Jesus is our hope. We hope in Christ. But just different ways to, to phrase it, different ways to get there. He doesn't quite call it a gift from God, for example, here. But suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. I'm not even going to primarily focus on endurance and character with you here. Do you want hope? Right? That's a question for you. It's a question for your children. Do you want to have hope? How does Paul say hope comes? Hope comes by suffering. So if you want to have hope, in order to have such hope, that means you want to have suffering. And so maybe our prayer as Christians should not be that the Lord would remove suffering from us, but instead, Lord, give me the gift of suffering that I may learn to hope in you above all things. Because that's what it does. Suffering teaches us to stop counting on the things of this world, to stop putting our trust in our bank account because we've lost our job, to stop putting our trust in the food on the table or the roof over our head because of a famine or because of a tornado that has struck, right? Suffering, whether it's natural, like a, again, a famine or a tornado, or man-made, the, the violence done from without, right, by another person. Suffering teaches us to not rely on the things of this world. Suffering leads to hope. 
as we put our hope in the only thing that will survive, the only thing that can carry us through all of this, and that is, again, Christ himself. And then we move into verses 6 through 10, which have a different, a bit of a different theme, still the same kind of idea. At the right, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want you to look at verse 6 in that regard. And then verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Those three lines, memorize them, right? Remember them. This is the gospel. While we were weak, Christ died for us separated from God, rebellious, didn't care, didn't have a a hope in the world. Christ rescued us. At the right time is an important concept. Oftentimes you'll hear people wonder, well, why didn't God send Jesus today? I mean, like, if he had been around now, we have all this technology, social media, news, everything's global, things go viral overnight. Everybody would have known about Jesus and seen his miracles Would they? Remember that the sinner hates to be told that their ways are evil. And even the people that saw Jesus' miracles rejected him, many of them. So it would be today. They would be running, you know, documentaries and reports about how the the miracles that we thought we were seeing Jesus do were just like, computerized CGI kind of stuff, or how he didn't really rise from the dead. I mean, you know, CSI shows would come up about how Jesus bodies over here. Nobody would believe just because he came today. He came into this creation at the time God the Father ordained. We don't know why. It's God's choice, not ours. And he will come again into this creation, on his own timing, whenever the Father sends him. Verse 7, kind of in the middle here. Interesting phrase that, by and large, people won't die for a good person. I know the, the language isn't necessarily the most helpful. People will rarely die for a righteous person. So a perfect person, a just person, meh, people don't tend to like them maybe somebody will die for a good person. And that word good can also be translated perhaps as better or exceptional. So we might think of our idols today, the celebrities, the superstars um, of pop culture or sports or whatever it might be. If you were put in a situation where you could give your life for one of them, maybe some would do that. But if it's just that random person down the street, most people aren't going to care. That's the kind of point that he makes here. But Jesus shows his love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not good, not right, not superstars, sinners, Christ died for us. That's his his love, how wonderful it is. And if we have been justified by his blood, which we have, right, made one with God by his blood, much more now will we be saved by him from his wrath. That same thing is coming back in the next verse too. So while we were on the other side, the wrong side of things, 
God still loved us, God still saved us, how much better will things be now that we're reconciled to him? That's the point in verse 10. While we were enemies, God loved us so much that he fixed our brokenness and he returned us, restored us to himself. How much more now, since we're reconciled, since we're his, how much more now are we saved by his life? So if while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we opposed him, he still loved us and we benefited in his love. How much more can we benefit from his love now that we're family, now that we're his children? And so we rejoice in God. That's a fun word when you break it down. Re is to do something again, right? That prefix. Joy, joyce, to joy again. We entrust ourselves to the Lord. We take our joy, that is what we treasure, and it's Jesus. So we rejoice in him again and again. The rest of the text, verses 12 through 21 today, are a a fairly repetitive thing. And it feels like Paul could have said it in shorter words, but that's okay. Uh, Every word of God is a gift from God, and so we rejoice at that. The basic gist of the second section is what I introduced the topic with today, and that is the opposite of Adam and Jesus. In Adam and in Adam's sin, the whole world was brought under the curse of death. But in Jesus, and in Jesus' righteousness and his perfect obedience, the whole world is offered life. That's the difference here that you see in this second section. So you see it several times. Sin came into the world through one man, verse 12. Death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's several concepts to that, right? Death came into the world through sin. Christians, evolution is flat out a lie and incorrect, wrong, a rejection of scripture, right? The very first death of man in creation is Adam, and it doesn't come until after he has fallen into sin. Evolution posits the opposite, that there was plenty of death in this world before man even existed. Death is on account of sin. It's an account of brokenness. God made things good, and we're moving in the opposite direction until Christ returns and restores all things. Evolution posits things started broken, not not good, and they're making their way to being better and better. But also, we're told here that we all sin. Again, no one righteous, no not one. There are no exceptions except Jesus. Death spread to all men. Verses 13 and 14 can be a little confusing, um, especially that phrase, sin is not counted where there is no law. The point that he's making in that section is that indeed, actually, where there was no law, there was still sin, right? Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though the law was not yet given. Death reigned, which meant sin reigned. Adam sinned even though there was no Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, Noah was a sinner, even though the first five books of the Bible weren't there. So perhaps sin is not counted means that we're not keeping a record, we're not counting it. I'm not really sure. That little phrase, let Scripture interpret Scripture when you get those difficult things. But what he's getting at quite clear here is, again, from Adam and onward, there is this death in the world. The sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam's transgression, that first sin, broke the world and set us in a war with God. 
It's not to say our sins are not bad, right? Um, but now we have this original sin that has been passed on from generation to generation. And Adam is a type. Type, anti-type language is kind of like foreshadowing. You have a type, that is you have a thing. Uh, typically it's in the Old Testament. And the anti-type is usually a fulfillment of it in the New Testament. So Adam is a type. He was an example where the whole world is impacted by his action. Jesus is the anti-type. He fulfills that type where the whole world is impacted by his action, but in a greater, grander way than the first. This is what we see like the Passover in Exodus 12 compared to the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, I think it is, or 1 Corinthians 11, or Luke, Mark recorded also. Type and anti-type is quite a common theological concept. Jesus is far better than Adam. All right, so running out of time here, you get that repetition. The free gift is not like the trespass. Many died through the one man's trespass. Much more, the grace of God, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. All right. It's in Christ that we are saved. It is in Christ that you and I are made one with God again. And it's not by our works. It's a free gift. Grace. And to define grace as gift is a, a helpful way to think of it, although it gets a little confusing when you then have the words gift and gift in the verse. But typically when you hear the word grace, you can look at it that way, and that's helpful. We don't earn this. If anything, we were earning death by our sin. But Christ has earned life for us, and he's given it to us as a gift. It's his work, not ours. Now, verse 20 is going to set up tomorrow, so let's end with that. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Because each of those sins is forgiven. Each of those sinners is forgiven and reconciled to the Lord. But, Hold on to that for tomorrow, where we'll pick right up with chapter 6. Let us praise the burning Christ who suffered.